Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is episode 120 and I'm regular host Aaron Percival aka Corporal Hicks and joining me are usual partners in crime, Adam Zeller aka Richtop. Hey everyone. AJ Bischoff, Voodoo Magic, happy holidays everyone. And, well, yes, AJ's just spoiled it. This is Christmas time, this is December, and this is our last episode of the year. So regulars know that we are going to be nattering about something alien versus predator. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, AJ's completely freaking spoiled it because he's got it in front of his microphone telling everybody what we're going to be talking about. And, well, I say that like people haven't seen the link or the title of the podcast or seen the, the picture on Spotify or whatever. But yes, we are are talking aliens versus predator hunters planet your uk version looks a little different aaron yeah i've got the millennium it's it's red and gold and ours is like blue and silver Mm -hmm. with the john bolton artwork i think it is on the front it's nice artwork it's good cover art I miss the the old Alien Predator and AVP cover art. They had some good ones back in the day. Well, they used to they used to get the good guys on it. You know, they had Dorman on it. Dorman did several. John Bolton did several. So you know, they put the effort in it back then. And it wouldn't be me if I didn't try to work in some sort of Predator Two reference. But the artwork also features oh. the aesthetics of the lost Predator ship. Mm-hmm. It certainly does because that was the one we had when this came out. That was the only point of reference. And I think I think Bolton also did the artwork for Predator Cold War's novel cover. And that also had the interior of a Predator spaceship with the P2 aesthetic, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think so. This was the sequel to AVP Prey, which was the mm-hmm. first AVP novel and adapted the first AVP comic by Dark Horse. So this came out before War's novel adaptation, right? The date I'm seeing on the book is 1994. There are some overlap, which I'm just going to check. Yeah, and I'm going to need you guys to explain this to me because I really don't understand the timeline. Now, it's been a while since I frequented War. I never read the novelization, but I did read, you know, the, the comic series. And... Shorty was in war and Shorty was killed in war, if I remember correctly. Yet Shorty's in, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, I hope, because everyone who's listening to this already read it. I mean, Shorty is also killed in this novelization, in this story. So in Hunter's Planet, Hunter's Planet was published in 94. However, War was published in 95, but War also includes issue zero which is that cool one with Machiko and the clan assaulting a predator, uh, 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 an alien boob hive. And that is adapted in this because issue zero was released in parts in 1992. But didn't uh, Machiko betray the predators in war? And yet it's referenced in this novelization that she has already betrayed them. Yes. So this wasn't the same planet, right? It's not the same planet listed in war. Hang on, because I I took notes. It's really like these stories are intertwined in a way, and they keep... Yeah, I mean, you almost feel like War is the prequel to this. Yeah. And this is the third book in the series, but it's There's just some minor inconsistencies. So it it feels like to me that David Bishkoff, the author, had at least talked to perhaps Randy Stradley or Dark Horse because it makes reference to her betraying the Predators to save some miners on, on a planet. 
And I think that he just had an inkling of where they were intending to go with war, but they only actually had the issue zero. So maybe he had intended this to be a sequel of war, but just didn't know all the specifics of that story yet. Yes. By the way, I'm going to be calling him David Bischoff because it's the same last name I have. And that's the way we pronounce it over here. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You know what? It's not in my notes. I'm sure I'm sure they referenced the planet's name in here and it wasn't Buddha Buddha from war. Uh, it was something no. different, but I'm, yeah, I'm sure it was, planet was different. Yeah. From war. Yeah. I remember that. So I, I think it was just a little, you know, because because war itself, the actual run took so long to crack off. I think he just didn't know about Shorty's death and it was actually intended to take place after war because it takes place after a similar event. There's just that one. That That is the more noticeable inconsistency is the fact that Shorty's alive. So I think we can call this number three. If anything, it's perhaps an alternate sequel to uh, Three World War. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that you know, I had it in my memory for ages because that this was this was an alternate take to war. You know, that's how I'd always thought about it. But you know, I'd all, I've only read this once. So. I, I wonder why they didn't just wait for war though. If Bantam, like if Prey was really su- successful for them, they just wanted to get out a sequel quickly, and they didn't want to wait for Dark Horse or no, I, with that. no idea. I don't think uh, Bischoff had Bischoff Bischoff. Bischoff, yeah. Bischoff has um, a social presence. So I had intended to try and ask him, but, you know. It's actually a German name. So my father. I don't think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's right. I was just saying my father was born in Germany and he came over from Berlin and lots of Bischoffs over there, including Bischoff Beer. I also happen to have a German last name myself. (laughs) Is it really? Yeah, Zeller is German. Okay. I think it's Steward of the Wine Cellar in German, which. How appropriate. <laughs> he says holding his glass of alcohol. Yeah, Percival is a pretty like common it's, British last name, is it not? It's no? French. Yeah, it's French. Oh. However, Percival was a, I think it's Percival, was a knight of King Arthur's round table. Oh, so not hmm. far from that. So, you know, I, I like to say it's the King Arthur's one and not. <laughs> so while you gentlemen had... Uh, previous prior experience with this novel this was my first time reading it so i was going in cold you know and i don't know if we're going to start getting into our reactions yeah why don't you give us your impressions first since you read it fresh for the first time aaron and i had both read it before okay aliens versus predator hunters planet i'm just gonna sigh for a second (laughs) (laughs) oh i can tell where this is going already (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know have you gentlemen ever i'm sure you've read junior novelization right a junior novel um, those novels written for that preteen era that was oh come on it's not that oh hang on oh Oh, did you read did you read prey before you read I oh, you know. haven't? Oh, okay. No, I've read all the comics that surround Machiko, but not the novelization. So this was my first time, you know, dabbling into that. But for me, this felt like, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, a junior novel is like written for that preteen era, era that is more adult than your children's fare, but not enough substance to entertain, you know, a true adult. And to me, the way my mind works, this encapsulates Alien vs. Predator Hunter's planet for me. I mean, everything from the paper-thin characters and dialogue, that the dialogue is just totally unrealistic, to the overused literary trope of that rich corporate mogul revealing himself to be an evil, twirling mustache villain. 
Right in the beginning of this novel, the warning signs for me were there when that group of predators approached that still alien xenomorph on an alien planet. And for the author, the moment of tension was there. It was there to grab. But when that xenomorph spins around, brandishing a weapon, oh, it was a big red flag for me. I, I, I think the the idea would be wild in my adolescent mind. Something to inspire <laughs> oohs and ahs, you know, uh, to all my friends. If I if I sketch this scene out in my you know in my middle school notebook, but I don't know as an adult. Even being a fan of these otherworldly creatures, the moment was just a big, ridiculous eye roll for me. And so so ultimately, it was a difficult read, difficult to find enjoyment, difficult to pay attention, and, and frustrating. And frustrating on the alien side, because one would think if you pick up a book titled Alien vs. Predator, you'd think aliens would be featured more than they were in this book, better represented than they were. So this book was disappointing to me. Boring is what I'd say. Written by someone with the last name as me, Bischoff. Come on, <laughs> Derek, you got to represent. But he didn't, not to me. So as a reader, I checked out. I didn't have a good time with this book. Total checkout. Okay, so n- numbered score. Oh, we're going to give us, we're not going to wait to the end? No, we, we never tend yeah, to, sometimes really. we do. Yeah, that's fine. But yeah, let's throw it right off the bat. Let's just give our little mini reviews first. All right. Um, Three out of 10. Oof. Oof. Okay. Rough. So I had initially read this in my late teen years, and I remember really enjoying it when I was younger. This was after I had read Prey, and I, I had really liked Prey at the time. Coming back to this. It, it did sour on me a bit. I felt like the writing went into tangents way too much. Like you would be establishing a scene and then characters in the scene would like go back and think of like previous things they had done and then would be like jolted back to the scene. And it was just a bit kind of all over the place in terms of writing style. I thought it didn't it wasn't like a smooth read. It, it was kind of a jumbled read for me, honestly. I don't know if you guys got that impression. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't want to step over your impression, and but I do want to get into the writing style. I had a real difficult time, real confusing time with the way uh, Derek wrote this book. So yeah, definitely. David, David, <laughs> did I say Derek? Oh. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My brother's name is Derek. So I'm just going to keep, <laughs> <laughs> if you guys hear Derek, I mean, David, I mean, I, there were things about this book that I enjoyed and it was kind of interesting to see. And there, there will be spoilers here as there typically are in these kind of podcasts. The book has dinosaurs in it. <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's a scene in the book where all these predators are, are hunting a, a T-Rex that has been genetically recreated. And of course, my my teenage reader sensibilities was very much excited by by this prospect. I remember when I was younger, I wrote like a Alien versus Predator versus Jurassic Park fan fiction. And so this was pretty exciting from someone who was also a big fan of that franchise at the time. But yeah, going back to it, I did not enjoy it as much. There were things that I really liked about it and other things that kind of went over the top with. I thought the whole, I thought the first half of the book was definitely stronger. 
It was interesting when Livermore Evanston kind of struck that deal with Michiko Noguchi and took her and her android companion Attila onto their ship. And it was a very like classy spaceship, which is something we haven't seen a lot of in the alien universe. And, and it's something I do like being explored, which, which also was kind of shown in, in the recent comic we read, AVP Thicker Than Blood. So the whole posh spaceship idea, I, I liked, you know, kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen the videos of that game that's never going to be finished, Star Citizen, where they pretty much just take everyone's money for these really expensive looking spaceships. And But the spaceships look really damn nice in that game. And it, it kind of reminded me of of that, you know, just a library on a spaceship was was really cool. And then the descriptions of the planet being very idyllic and this kind of hunters preserve game planet which which is interesting kind of in retrospect now that we've seen that with predators the movie in 2010 like the predators have their game planets and you have your wealthy megalomaniac here that is trying to run his game preserve planet but as we discover he has uh more sinister motives at play but not getting into the story too much just yet to kind of conclude my thoughts yeah it was it was okay you know it it, it was entertaining I, ju- I just felt the writing style did not make for an easy read I do think Machiko was was a fun character here and the kind of banter she had back and forth with her Android Attila was was fun at times but the other characters felt pretty shallow I would say the predators I'm starting to get on your side Aaron with the whole space samurai thing. Like going back and reading these books, like the Perry books and this book, at least the Perry AVP books, I think pushed that a bit too hard or maybe really too hard. (laughs) Because, I mean, we know the Predators are prideful and that gets the best of them. But the whole like the whole they must walk the path kind of thing in this, it just gets a bit too much. It's so clean. So, so yeah, for me, it's probably a six, maybe a five. Likewise with um, with Adam, I read this in my late teens. I've just worked out from the date of my review that I was 17 when um, I read this one. And that is one of the earliest reviews on the website. It will be revamped soon and because the old stuff is awful, always awful. But I hated, hated this book oh, really? when I was 17. I gave it two out of five on the review. How did I sum it up here? Having loved Bischoff's alien genocide, I was really disappointed in this novel. It had some brilliant ideas, such as the Xenoborg, but manages to ruin that with bad pacing, continuity foul-ups, and the very, very stupid character of Attila. (laughs) Now, this is interesting because I've completely changed on some of this. I did enjoy the last half, though, even though the novel lacked the aliens. It was worth the initial read, and I'm glad I got it, but it isn't something I'd read again. So it's taken me 13, 14 years to revisit this book because I, in my head, all I had was this this awful impression of it being a bag of crap. It's funny because like I, like I just read, you know, uh, Bischoff wrote Aliens Genocide, the novelization of that book, which is one I really, really love. And it's been a few years since I've read that one as well, but that's one I've, I've good memories of. And I always liked that one because I, I found the novel version more of a like a character study of, of Grant. And it went into him a lot, belt, a lot more than the comic does, as so do the novelizations do. But yeah, I, I really like that one. So for this one to be a dud was, was disappointing to me. Now, I slagged off Attila in that review 
I absolutely loved Attila while I was reading this this time. He was so uh, much fun to me. He was and... entertaining at times, but I, I would not say that I loved his oh, character. I, I loved him. I, he he reminded me of David, he did, and I love David. And there's just something about this cheeky android and the whole dynamic that's not quite android. I know if Eric was on, he'd be, uh, be complaining about it not being properly representative of, of artificial intelligence. But that's, that's the reason I like sarcastic robots so attila i really loved in this and i think i think that was really my main carry through for this there's lots of little elements that i did enjoy you know the idea of the hunter's planet the idea of the genetically as much as i hate generally genetically engineered storylines now the idea of creating a jurassic park for hunters was it was interesting to me the xenoborgs is we're gonna we're gonna call them xenoborgs the book calls them buggers the buggers the buggers which is awful as a name <laughs> adam and adam and i go for xenoborgs since it's it's moderately related to the, the the xenoborgs from avp classic because they were cybernetically enhanced aliens like they are in this although they, this muddles it all up because it talks about genetics it talks about all sorts of different cybernetic it, it all you know, it kind of reminded me of a recent piece of fan art that I just sent you guys in the chat here. Yeah, I, I had the very was, same um, the very same mental image. It's like xenomorphs being taken control. It was done by Merrick Ocon, I think. It's the one that everybody thought was to do with Alien Five. Bond right, Alien Five. Right, yeah. Look, I'm going to continue calling these the buggers throughout the podcast. <laughs> it's a reminder of the writing choices made in this book. <laughs> I don't want to make this sound better because every time you read the name buggers, you're going to cringe. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. Aaron. I didn't hate it as much as I remembered hating it, but I was disappointed by it. It was, I listened to a Spider-Man podcast and there's a very grouchy old dude on that. And he always has a comment about the issues that he's indifferent about. And it's that he didn't find them personally offensive. This book, I did not find personally offensive, <laughs> but it, it was so middling. And, and it's all a part of that bad sequelitis. You know, I've gone on to read Forever Midnight. I've gone on to read Steel Egg and, and DNA War. So it didn't feel as bad to me as some, as, as some of the other stuff that's come out since. I remember really liking DNA War, but I got to go back and read some of the others. And see <laughs> you also really remembered liking this one. I did, so. and it soured on me, unfortunately. And, Maybe and, DNA War will as well. But. And Adam, you said that was through your teenage years. So that's, you know, I, I would imagine a teenager, I mean, not to anyone who enjoys this, but just from my perspective, it's not enough for an adult. I can't get in that teenage mindset to just love this, but I can imagine teenagers going crazy over this story. Young teenagers. <sighs> I'm not. I'm not so sure. But and you, you, you said about the idea of an alien with a gun being the thing that would have flipped a, you know, flipped a teenager. I mean, we got Jerry from the. We've got Jerry, and Jerry still rocks, regardless of what anybody says. Jerry, Drew, I know you're probably not listening to this, Drew, but if you ever do, Jerry rocks. <laughs> All right. Like synthetics that aren't normal so, synthetics. So, so for me, we get into everything. What's your score, Aaron? Four or five out of ten. Okay. It was just, eh. It's poor. I didn't hate it as much as I remembered hating it. It was just, it was there. Again, I probably would not read this until 10 more years down the line. I forget we've done this episode and I go, all right, let's 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 do a, an episode on Hunter's Planet. And you mm. know, we really don't have a lot of AVP novels. We got these three in the 90s. 
And then we had the Rage War trilogy a lot more recently, which only one of those was branded as, as AVP, even yeah, though it was an AVP the, trilogy. The whole um, event is AVP, let's be honest. Yeah. But I saw in uh, one of the recent books, they said AVP Armageddon. Is that coming? That is the last book from Rage War. Oh, well, maybe I'm thinking of something else because I could have sworn in, in one of the more recent books we got, there was another AVP upcoming. No. Maybe not. That, that's all we've got is, is these three old ones from the 90s from Bantam slash Millennium, if you're in the and UK. The Rage War. And then the Rage War, yeah. So let's talk about David Bischoff, the writer. I mean, Adam brought up the writing and his difficulty with it. And I have to agree wholeheartedly. Well, but before we get on to that bit, because I, I kind of want to be a bit more inclusive for the people that haven't read the book and still want to listen. So uh, if Adam could walk us through sure. know, the plot um, of this. So this takes place a couple of years after the original story. If you've read either the original Dark Horse comic for AVP or the adaptation of that which was Steve Perry's AVP Prey, in which Machiko Noguchi was, you know, one of the the heads of this colony rancher operation that was infested by aliens and predators show up. And so we won't go fully into that. But long story short, Machiko is one of the few survivors. She survives by partnering up with a predator known as Broken Tusk or Dachande. And he is killed at the end. But before he is killed, he bloods her. And so she is recognized as a blooded warrior among the predators. And after she lives on her own on the planet for a while, another predator group shows up and she decides to like roll with them as a hunter for, for a few years. And so it does, the book goes into that a little bit in terms of her and the kind of cultural divide between her and, and the predators, but she still gets a, a thrill about living with them on their ship and, and hunting with them. But eventually, just like in the, I guess we're calling it alternate story war, there comes a point where she has to choose between saving other humans or going with the predators as the predators have decided to hunt humans in a specific instance, and she doesn't want to kill her own. So the predator that has always given her trouble, whose nickname is Shorty, I'm not going to try and uh, pronounce his predator name in this book. So she, I guess, betrays him and then goes off on her own again and is set up on a, what's the planet, Aaron? Is it like a mining planet? I don't think it really talks about it too much. I think I think it's some sort of mining world, perhaps. Right. It, it was one of those sort of skip it kind of moment details well, yeah, in the story. I mean, she's, she's in another administrative position. Now. She's bored. She's, she's bored. bored as she's doing office work. She has a, an android named Attila, who she purchased, which they specify is not typical for individuals to own androids, which you wouldn't think by some of the viral marketing for, for Covenant now. But in the framing of this book, is it was not too common. But she essentially has him as a sparring partner and assistant. And it's specified that he's more mechanical than androids typically are in the alien universe with the white blood and all that, whereas he has like a, a holographic thing that comes out of his forehead and he can like look like a samurai war to make their sparring more immersive. And he's very cheeky, like you said, Aaron, always like trying to engage her in philosophical conversation. They like to talk about, you know, war a lot. They mentioned the book, The Art of War. And eventually Machiko gets an offer from a uh, wealthy businessman who arrives on this planet on a space yacht. And he says, I know about your past. I know you've dealt with these bugs before. And I'm setting up a game preserve planet, essentially, where really wealthy people in the galaxy come to hunt game. 
And he says, you know, people haven't really caught wind of this yet at the planet. I need you to to come here and help me take care of my bug problem. And so she, I guess, is contracted by the company for a while. And he offers to rid her of her contract. Just one thing to point out. The the book always refers to it as the, the company, which in alien parlance, you normally tend to think means um, Weyland-Yutani, yeah. but it is, it is Ch- Chigusa. Um, oh, the, really? Yeah. It says it on the back for a start of the book, but that's the company that she always worked for. Right. So she agrees to at least see what's going on because it seems like a pretty enticing deal. He kind of coaxes her out by saying if she's not on board with it within a few weeks, then she still makes a bunch of money and she can leave. Um, And so she and her android take a journey on this really classy space yacht that he has and go to his hunter's planet, as it were, where he has a small colony set up, kind of like a a hunting lodge. And we see there are these other humans already there. So the story kind of jumps there and they are trying to hunt this crazy alien animal that's kind of like a a feline, six-limbed animal. Uh, What are they called it? Like a zangoid or something? Something like that, yeah. But it it chest bursts and then predators show up and take out this hunting party. And this is, I think, before they arrive still. And one of them's like this lawyer guy. So there's a lot of like posh, pompous assholery in this book. (laughs) And then so after Machiko, her android, well, on the way there, they visit the library on this space yacht. And they find a hidden room in the library that has all these war artifacts. And among them are some predator artifacts. And they don't really know what to make of it at the time. And then they arrive to the planet. They're given a tour by, I guess, their concierge. Again, it's hard to remember all the characters' names in this book because they really were not that memorable. One Um, of the notes that I had was how friggin' stupid everybody's <laughs> names were in this book. It and was they, incredibly dumb. They, they totally were... went a little far on the the pompous, you know, like, nature of these characters. Just how, like, how they talked, how snooty they always sounded like, oh, yes, indeed, hmm, shall we have some fine cognac as we tour the facility? Like, it was just like, <laughs> oh, my God, at some times. Anyway, so this lawyer who um, his associate was, was face-hugged while they were on this expedition expedition. He was the only guy who survived. And this world is kind of outside of the bounds of the laws of the corporations or, or governments. And so this industrialist owns this planet himself, Livermore Evanston. And so he has his concierge, I guess, or whoever this guy is, take Machiko and her android for a tour of the small colony. And they talk about how idyllic the planet is in terms of its environment, like, you know, beautiful waterfalls and plains, and it's just a really nice looking world. Uh, But this lawyer arrives, pulls up in like a sports car, and is all panicked and goes off to talk to uh, Evanston about what happened on their ill-fated hunting excursion. There's this scene in the book, which I will give credit for, that's pretty messed up, where they they go to a park in the colony, and there's all these like nice ducks and swans, and they see a bunch of these hunters come out and, and like feed the ducks, and then they all just blast the ducks. And he's like, oh, don't worry, we'll just clone them all again. <laughs> I'm like, wow, just people who really get off on killing come here, I guess. So they take Machiko back to her quarters or to her quarters to get settled. And then some of the mercenaries show up with beer kegs to um, introduce themselves, I guess. And she quickly establishes that she's not one to be messed with. But after that little conflict passes, um, they do have some civil conversation about, hey, do you know what's really going on here kind of thing? 
So the next day, they take a hover vehicle out to kind of survey the land. And that's when they come across the scene of all these predators fighting a T-Rex. So it also establishes before this that there are predators on this planet. Their leader is killed by what they think is a xenomorph, but the xenomorph ends up being armed. And so they discover it's like a cyborg xenomorph. And Shorty, uh, one of the underling predators, assumes command after their leader is killed by one of these xenoborgs, as Aaron and I like to call them. And so after surveying the land, she finds them taking down a T-Rex, lands the the vehicle, and then a predator attacks her. But before it can take her out, her android Attila assumes control of the VTOL craft and essentially blows the predator to bits and rescues her. They go back to talk to Evanston again, which I guess they they do let on. Yes, we know you kind of had a history with these creatures and with these hunters, and we don't know what to do about them. And that's part of the reason why we had you here as well. But they do hint like, oh, no, they're not the reason the bugs are here, but I don't think they really go into it. Also, during the tour that they took Machiko and Attila on, she was really curious about the cloning facility, which they were kind of like, oh, well, we don't know if we can show you that yet. But Evanston does say, oh, Oh, yes, we'll we'll give you a tour and show you what's going on there after she's like, I saw a dinosaur, like you must have this crazy facility. And that's maybe why the predators are here, because they want to hunt the creatures that you're engineering. So before they can give her a tour, the the lawyer guy is taking them to survey the area where the rest of his hunting party was killed and see what happened to his partner who was face hugged. They find her. She is chest bursted. And then they are... Not, not quite. So, so they they find her unconscious. She's like, you know, everybody else has died. They find, I think, the remains of one of the Xenoborgs, and it's like a curiosity because there's evidence of Attila like detects evidence of plastics and ceramics and metal and stuff, as well as like the alien's body. And they find the lawyer's partner uh, in a bush somewhere, completely left alone, no memory of what happens after she falls down. And then they take her back, and you then eventually discover, you know, they they leave a couple of hints, but then. She births in front of everybody. And at that point, they're kind of more focused on getting the situation under control. But Machiko and Attila are still pretty focused on seeing what exactly is going on in this cloning facility. So at night, they decide to sneak in and they find out he is producing these xenomorph cyborgs. So once Machiko and Attila figure out what's happening, they try and leg it from from the cloning facility but they get caught and this this is when the novel seems to actually sort of kick into gear you know i think this is about 200 pages into the book before it happens and it's a 250 page book or maybe a little bit before and maybe 180 pages they try and escape and they get chased by the security guards. Attila gets his, in true alien fashion, gets his head blown off his body. So she spends the rest of the book carrying him round by his head. And they then, Machiko then decides to try and team up, or try and convince the Predators that it is a bad idea to let Evanston make Xenoborgs and she tries to parlay them basically. She has to get into a fight with Shorty because Shorty knows who she is. And he always hated her, at least in terms of war and in, at least in terms of issue zero, which I think is about all the Bischoff had to, to work with with this one. So they have a scrap. It looks like he's going to win. But then Attila has some secret weapons. It, it, Attila's capabilities are something of a running gag throughout the book. 
I say gag, a running point throughout the book is to who he was before Machiko got hold of him. As far as she was concerned, he'd been wiped and just had whatever she requested put on, but he had all these hidden capabilities and that were a point of discussion throughout. And one of them is apparently laser eyes. Maybe not quite Superman laser eyes, but he could shoot lasers somehow. So when it looked like Machiko was going to lose on Shorty which gave her a moment to then jab him through the face, I think, with a a knife or the end of a spear. I can't quite remember the specifics of that one. So she proves her worth, convinces the Predators that the Xenobugs are a bad idea and to join her in assaulting the cloning facility, basically, to, to kill them all. And then from that point on, it's basically an assault on on the cloning facility. She has to get in touch with the two people from her mercenary unit that she got on with and developed bonds with. They organize an assault, go for the facility. Everything seems all right. Evanston thinks he's a genius tactician and releases the Xenoborgs. But it's his first test of the Xenoborgs. They're not quite effective. Then somehow he loses control of them because up to that point, he was like basically remote controlling them. He sat there in a bunker with a joystick. Well, Bischoff doesn't say that, but that's how I imagine it. Uh, But something happens that causes the Xenoborgs to break free of their control and, and they just leg it. Then Bischoff, uh, not Bischoff, (laughs) Evanston legs it as well. There's a little bit of rushed drama in terms of trying to catch Evanston, but ultimately they corner him on his own spaceship and the game to basically do initiate the self-destruct, I suppose, a feature that he had installed in the Xenobogs, because of course he did, and then the Predators get him. And then basically the novel ends. <laughs> After that point, it's kind of like, so, Machiko, you have your own planet now. What are you going to do? Yeah, there's no real resolution outside of that. The Predators show up with Evanston's head, and the, it's then a, we'll deal with those guys tomorrow. Attila's like, can I have my body back? They're like, we'll try. And then basically, yeah, it ends with Machiko being, you know, the governess of of, of a colony. And what was the explained motive again of Evanston's army? Well, they'd said in the book that his personal motivation was to make this army of modified xenomorphs, quote, remake civilization (laughs) according to the ideas he knew was correct. End quote. You'll never stop me, Mr. Eye roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want you to die. Yeah. Uh, Livermore Evanston, man. What a villain. I mean, how about that mustache twirling Livermore? Yeah, but why Evanston? would he even bring her there if he had this hidden master plan? Well, he wanted her to eventually train this army. He'd sort of like wanted her there to come and help clear up the ones that had already escaped because a few got out and somehow caused this mess. I don't really understand how they then went on to infect everything else because there's no mention. Oh, that's another thing. The book ends with a, oh, we've still got all those other aliens left to go deal with that are out in the wild. We'll deal, we'll, we'll deal with them in the next book. <laughs> I think some got out and they started face hugging the animals and this thing was going to blow up fast. So. But it was just adults. It was just adults. There's no mention of queens there's no mention of egg morphine or anything like that it's just a couple get out and suddenly there's a ton knocking around we did see a face hugger at least one so even though it's not mentioned we know there are face huggers coming from eggs somewhere yeah but but who's laying the eggs man 
Well, we don't know. You know, it's one of the book's many mysteries, but it was all about, you know, <laughs> controlling the population, you know, and uh, the xenomorph population and from ruining his planet. So he was bringing over all these mercenaries and everyone that had experience with exterminating xenomorphs. And Machiko was one of them. And he was hoping Machiko would actually lead these these group of tough guys. But back to Evingston, you know, he named, he, he's, he's a funny guy. He named his island continent Livermore Land. Okay. This is, his name is Livermore Evingston. Livermore so he, Land. he named the continent his first name yes. and the town his his last name. You're right. Its capital city was Evingstonville. Okay. Not so, narcissistic at all. So, but let's stop right there when it just comes to the writing here. I mean, why wouldn't Eviston call his capital city Eviston, not Evingstonville, or call the continent Livermore, not Livermore Land? I mean, when you're when you're dealing maybe with an amusement park, I get it. But welcome uh, to Livermore Land, <laughs> my good chum, and Evingstonville. <laughs> you know, this is a highly intellectual mogul. Come on, would he really name these places like that? I mean, I couldn't take this villain seriously. There's no, a lot in this very, book to like, not bubbly. take seriously. He seemed very bubbly and like joyful in his personality, which made his megalomania, meg, megalomaniacal intentions even more <laughs> unrealistic. Yeah, as, as, as far as people, characters who have attempted to control the aliens in the past, this guy is, is the worst. <laughs> is the literal worst. I mean, Spears, Spears was all manner of interesting. Church was interesting. I mean, even the, I suppose the methods were kind of, would have been interesting in this had they not just been a wishy-washy of, of technical words and concepts in this. But he, he was a con for me, Evermore was. It was kind, it was kind of interesting to start with especially in the bits on the luxury yacht ship whatever you know that that sequence i enjoyed where they found michiko and until i found like evidence of him knowing about the predators you know all that stuff i was i was kind of into because the the through line of the book is very much this mystery of, of what's really happening when and that bit i think was fun you know the, the mystery was fun for a good while of this book at least from my my perspective there were bits of mystery and i agree when it and when it started feeling mysterious the book was probably at its best but it really didn't play up that mystery too much you know and you can see the villain a mile away it's you know. always the capitalist. It's always the big mogul and then the Elon Musk in, in, in alien stuff and alien versus predator. And they were pointing to that lab from the beginning that there's something mysterious. You know, why won't he let us show, you know, why won't he show us that lab? Something's going on in there. But, you know, that was no. presented to us no. in the, uh, the, the uh, prologue, right? It was very predictable. Yeah, we already knew that xenomorphs don't traditionally, you know, brandish weapons. And start firing, you know, at predators where they killed that that leader. I'm gonna try his name, Nakapu. <laughs> yeah, that, that oh, was another thing. In Perry this. predator names all over the place. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the Perry names having so many apostrophes in them. Wow. I mean, at least you had um, what was it, Deshande and what was Machiko's name, Tichinde, Little Knife. No, that was Doughty. Yeah, something. Tichinde was somebody, I'm sure it was. It might have been one of the other youngsters. But yeah, all the apostrophes in the Predator names were ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, so you think about the mystery, right? And it's like you learn in the prologue that the butler did it. You, there's a xenomorph with a gun. And then we're going to play up all this mystery about the lab. Something's going on with the lab. 
David would have done himself better if he didn't reveal this mystery. You know, even if they just stumbled upon a predator that was shot and killed and it wasn't any of these mercenaries, who could have done it? Who else is on this planet, you know, and and, and be mysterious about it. But they showed their hand before the first chapter. And I'm like, David, what are you doing? I don't understand. The readers already know. Yet we're still playing like this is a big mystery. I mean, you know, Aaron, you were always complaining about the audience far ahead of the character. And uh, we were so far ahead of Machiko throughout this whole book. And it was kind of frustrating for me to get to it because we all knew what was happening there. But uh, it took forever. What? Until the last hmm, 40 pages, 50 pages to finally, maybe, maybe a little further, but to reveal what, you know, Livermore's secret was. And it just wasn't a surprise at all. I would have loved a lot more mystery. I think that would have helped this book. On on the topic of the biolab, can I can I also just say something? Because I've I've in my notes that the biolab's introduction was jarring because prior to them actually getting on the planet, all he'd been talking about was transplanting other species and dropping them on the planet as the game. And then when you get there, it then becomes pretty much all about cloning and genetic manipulation and, and breeding dinosaurs and ducks and stuff. So that seemed like something that was just kind of thought up in the middle of, and they went with it from there. And they just kind of hand wave away the recreation of dinosaurs too. They're like, well, they can, they can pretty much manufacture DNA so that it can go exactly whatever direction that they want it to. And you think they would have played up that Trinosaurus Rex scene. I mean, once we finally got to see this, you think there would be a big spotlight on this battle and how these predators pretty much tried to, to hunt this beast and overcome this beast and how difficult it would have been. But it, it was like an afterthought. It was just like observing, yeah, they're fighting a T-Rex. That was yeah. it. That, that, that was, was it, yeah. It. Like, if you're going to yeah. throw dinosaurs in there, at least yeah. do a little bit more with it. It did seem like a load of random ideas that were sort of thrown together. And I hate to say this, but again, because of just how much I really enjoy genocide. But this one just seemed made up on the fly. It's like, okay, so we've got this multi-legged cat thing that's super awesome. Oh, oh we've also got dinosaurs. I've, I've thought of that while I were on the bog, and I'll throw that in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, shit. The, the main mystery. Oh, God, that alien with a gun. Yeah, okay. Let's circle back around to that. Yeah, and all these things we've been telling you about, about how everybody's into war and stuff. Yeah, so he wants to just like use these cyborgs to wage war and have Machiko train them so he can take over worlds and mold humanity in his own image. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, he seemed all over the place, uh, David, you know, and maybe I could segue just a bit into his writing style, because did any of you find it off-putting and confusing like I did? And what I mean is, for example, there were these weird paragraph breaks after single sentences. And then mostly there were sometimes these long stretches of dialogue and conversation back and forth with no indicator of what character was speaking. Yeah. And, a, yep. and a couple of yep. times, based on the odd structuring or odd pacing of the dialogue, I was unclear who was saying what. And I actually had to go back and read and try to keep count so I know what characters said what in any given time, any given room. It was so <laughs> It was a rough read. It was a rough read. I've read a number of the recent books that are much better paced and flow better in terms of just the words on the page than this book. This book was a jumbled mess in parts, unfortunately. So the the whole um, not 
saying who's saying stuff thing was something I picked up on and had to go back quite a few times as well. Because, I mean, it's not uncommon in prose, but it's normally when you've got two people and they've got distinct different voices and personalities. And you can tell pretty easily who's doing it, but they were doing it with multiple characters in this. They were doing it without distinct voices. So I, I was as confused as AJ was at some point when, when they were doing that. Yeah, completely agree there. Yeah, and you figure some like an editor would catch on to that. What was also curious was these short, short chapters. I mean, <laughs> what was it? Like three paragraphs in a chapter, you know? And I, I wasn't used to it. It didn't confuse me, but I was just, I, I've never seen them grouped this way. Sometimes it works for a book. Now, Steve, oh no, Stephen Yule was the art, uh, the, con- the cover artist of those books. Um, Jeff Vandermeer, who wrote South China Sea, Predator South China Sea. His book was until... Why am I blanking on his name? Phalanx. Who wrote Phalanx? I think... Uh, Scott Siegler. Okay. So un- until Scott Siegler rolled around with Phalanx, South China Sea was probably the fattest of, of the Alien and Predator books. And he used a lot of very short chapters, but it kept things turning. It maintained a very steady, fast pace that kept you moving through the book. With this one, it just felt like he didn't really have much to say. It yeah, was like a, a couple of points he wanted to put out quickly, but for some reason, rather than make it a, a break within a different chapter, he, he made it a two-page chapter, and it did feel not necessarily in service of the book. But I think yeah. some of those chapters even took place in the same setting, in the same event, and I, I didn't quite understand it, and I don't know the literary... Um, description it's just if you wanted to split it up you could have that little gap within the chapter and still stay within the chapter the only way i found this useful is because i was struggling with the story i could say okay i'm on this number i could go have a beer finish another chapter have another beer you know (laughs) and try to keep track of where i was but uh otherwise yeah it was just really it's really insane this book it was a hard book to stick with in terms of just reading it through. Yeah. Like you said, AJ, you had to kind of like take breaks and come back to it. It was not like one of those books that we've had where it just pulls you in and you can't really turn away from it. Yeah, I like the aforementioned failings. I, like I, I read through that yeah. in two, I read through that way in two longer days. in this book, but it felt shorter. <laughs> Yeah, you want a book you can't put down, you know, with interesting characters and so forth. And uh, maybe uh, I can step aside to interesting characters. I know that Aaron said he um, kind of liked Attila in his second read. That uh, Attila the Hun, the robot android sidekick. For me, I will agree with Aaron at first. At first, I actually found him a bit charming. Early on in the novel, I actually found, this is this is going to be one of the few positives I say about this book, I found a small portion of the story actually engaging when they discussed, lightly discussed, freedom or bondage, freedom in bondage. And if Till was content as an individual, always being in the service of Machiko. And I was like, oh, I'm, you know what? I'm really actually enjoying this conversation, even though it was formatted in that strange format. But later, uh, he, for me, he was just annoying. And when, when he became just a head, which I presume was supposed to be charming too. Well, let me stop right there. How long can an android survive without <laughs> his head? I mean, is his body just supposed to be a method of transportation? Is that synthetic blood that it lost nothing more than aesthetics? Well, I think the Covenant virals probably implied at least at least a few days, if not a week or so. And I think Hunter's Planet did make a point of mentioning the internal batteries 
and stuff yeah. in terms of, of him having them in his head. Though it did make me laugh because I think there was a comment in there about how he'd survive getting his head shot off, <laughs> exploded off his body. Good God, that, that oh. whole sequence was hilarious but one of the things that made me laugh is because i always say it you know when it comes to building robots you're not going to put the 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 vital component in the head because it's an obvious place to shoot i'd put it in the foot or something so they think about something like michiko thinks about something like that in the book when his um when his head goes flying yeah but you know what i was just thinking with his head that this head was like a um swiss army knife <laughs> you know it shoots laser beams and you could start a car with it she put the head to the ignition and somehow till his head was able to start the vehicle it's like inspector gadget by the <laughs> it was it. inspector gadget it was sharks with laser beams it was <laughs> i was i was laughing and crying at the same time i can agree with that in, in terms of the ridiculous nature of of how he was utilized as a plot device towards the end but on, honest to god it was it was just his dynamics with Michiko that really endeared me to him I just enjoyed their banter and their discussions and stuff and like even even when he did become the Swiss army knife of um, synthetics the the jib they were giving each other I still continued to like him I was like yeah I dig you I dig you okay you deserve I, your body back at the end of this because he was remote controlling his leg his body as well do you remember that Yes. Oh, it was so silly towards the end. And I'm not trying to change your mind, but No, I, don't get me wrong. I, I I still enjoyed him overall. But yeah. like I think I think the last probably 70 or so pages when it, the book goes from thinking there's a mystery to saying what the mystery is and trying to do something with it, you know. The book's 250 pages long. It takes about 190 pages for stuff to actually start happening. And it's those last pages where I'm just like Yeah. <sighs> Well, in those last pages, right, with Attila, we later find out this android has been programmed with a secret agenda, you know, programmed by this submersive alliance called the X Group, not the X-Men, the X Group, that were independent thinkers that do not agree with the company's policies and philosophies towards humankind. So this group, this X group is the first time Chico is hearing about it. Yet she continues to trust this android head in this life or death assault against this Evingston stronghold. I mean, how does she know the X group's agenda is pure? All she knows is this robot was assigned to her with programmed ulterior secret motives and she just runs with it blindly. Yeah, I mean, he. I think he did say that he was there to basically help her if she ran into trouble. That's why the X group had placed him with her, which is kind of interesting, is this idea of this subversive group working against, you know, the, the big bad corporations. But, you know, even down to the just, again, it felt like a kind of, Maybe not, maybe not so tacked on because they'd sort of hinted at his past throughout the book. It was a constant thread throughout. But I don't know. It's like with Evans, Evanston, Moreland and all that kind of crap, where just this, I'm not going to burden you with their true name, Majiko. Let's just call them the X group, where I was just <laughs> like, does Bischoff really not like names? Here's, here's, here's another one that I noted down that I thought was horrendous. Cordial as a name. What was that, a Marine? Cordial? I can't remember who it was. I think mm. it was one of the, the hunters group or the lawyers or something. No, no, it wasn't. It was the chauffeur. It was the chauffeur Adam was talking about earlier, the concierge. Except, yeah, I don't think names is Bischoff's thing, I'm going to yeah. be honest here. 
Well, either it's just getting these characters down because it's just, you know, I wanted to have a little bit of mistrust. I mean, Attila had to explain because Attila was doing these crazy feats and Machika was saying, what's going on? What the hell is going on with you? Where is this all coming from? So the fact that she's just going to blindly trust now that that this X group doesn't have necessarily nefarious purpose behind them too. I don't know. It's just, that's why if this stuff kind of reads to me like a young adult novel, it's just questions that you know, normal human beings would be very suspicious and approach. She's like, okay, off we go. Assault the camp, you know, assault the stronghold and really never have any sort of concern that normal humans would. I feel kind of bad here because David Bischoff actually passed away in 2018, as I just found out. But yeah, I don't think he would return to the franchise because I just wanted to look up his other works. His books were Genocide and Hunter's Planet. Hunter's Planet. But you said you liked Genocide. Yeah, right? I really I really liked, from what I remember, it's been a couple of years, but I remember really liking Genocide. But it was a very interesting dive into the guy who ran the Grant Corporation that would become a, a relatively important one in the EU. You know, that, that, was, that was the book and the corporation that set off the whole royal jelly thing which was you know black goo version one in terms of plot devices he wrote a number of other science fiction novels adaptation of gremlins the new batch and some star trek novels as well some sequest novels just some kind of some various he wrote a couple of star trek episodes as well from i remember that's right yeah yeah I'm curious what those are because um first contact was one that i remember not the film the episode the next gen episode I can't remember the other one. And maybe he improved as a writer, and uh, maybe this- <laughs> well, he he, he taught literacy, liter- literacy at the university. Well, that's different. But as I was talking with Attila and how Machiko would respond to this kind of news, it just it, it so many times it just didn't feel authentic. You know, the it, dialogue didn't feel authentic. It feels like a quickly put together work for hire is what yeah. this feels like. And and even really good writers have, have books that are just jobs or, or books that end up being duds. It, it just didn't feel true to the situation. And I think, you know, I think as writers grow, you know, young writers fall into this trap where they just don't know how humans talk. But instead, they'll write some quips that their young minds would think is so cool. But later as an adult, they'd go back to those younger writings and remark, "Ooh, this is bad. You know, this is awful. You know, and to me, this felt like young uh, writing that I was reading, like when Machiko and, and, and Sanchez, you know, crashed their car into the compound doors and it's the assault, it's the finale of the story and they're in a rush and their adrenaline is pumping and um, they're in a, a siege. She stops and she says, um, oh, I used to wreck cars all the time. I'm real good at it. Too bad I don't have insurance now, end quote. Yeah. Come on. This is high stakes. Too too bad I don't have insurance. She's making a, a, a dumb little quip in this life or death situation. She's trying. I don't know. Maybe at, at age 13, I would love this. I don't mean <laughs> to be so harsh. But even even like the villain Evanston, right? He says, welcome to my lovely trap. That was a quote, end quote. Before the trap was even sprung, it was over the PA system. And I'm like, oh, I know I got to finish this book. It's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) The the one book that we ask AJ to read for the podcast. (laughs) And it's this thing. Oh, well, I did. I did read Stalking Shadows. Oh, yes. To its credit, Stalking Shadows was a lot better written than this. So even though I had... Aaron, did you ever do a podcast on South China Sea? 
because no, that's something we got to do because I still have never read that book and you say it's the best Predator book of all time. So, Well, AJ, do you have 500 pounds to spend? $500? I actually have Sal China Sea. I also have you know what seems to be more expensive than that? Turnabout, which I have as well. As do I, yeah. yeah so. They are both the best Predator novels. Yeah. Turnabout and Tab China Sea. And this one... It's uh, not... I don't want to kill. I don't want to kill it, you know. And be honest with you, if you guys told me this was a junior novel, maybe I'd praise it. But let's it, be, I don't know, let's be fair Echo here, because Echo, awesome. yeah, yeah, Echo is a hell of a lot better than this. Uh, the the only thing with Echo was I don't know it how if I would have been quite as horny as she was during those oh. life or death situations. But other than that, I oh. thought Echo was really good. Yeah. Did you guys it's even nice. understand that love connection between Ned Sanchez, Sanchez and uh, Machiko? <laughs> I mean, I read it and I was like, if you guys remember, the attraction was explained this way, that uh, Ned was telling her this brief story. He was like, yeah, I'm just going to call him Joe. And Joe and me, we killed bugs. And we went into a hive. <laughs> and we made a mistake. Oh, man. Joe didn't come out. I did. But it shouldn't have been me. And Machiko responded, and I have this quote here. Machiko responded, so you're not doing this for money. That's why I'm attracted to you. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> That is an actual oh real quote, God. okay? And and then you know, oh, so that's why you're you're hot. Let's bang, you know, I, for money. I mean, I'm pretty sure the whole survivor's guilt thing was mentioned in this, though, in terms of her having the same guilt from making it out of Ryushi. Her guilt was a little more expanded, but Ned's was not. Yeah. He even said, "I'm just going to tell you a brief story," you know. Well, and even, even just that surface level connection between the survivor's guilt for both of them, I kind of liked. But in general, you know, I do agree with you. Pretty much everybody in this is paper thin. Uh, the, right. the relate the relationships are paper thin. Uh, there, there's inklings of good, perhaps ideas there, but yeah, again, it feels like it felt like a quick work for hire. It was pretty the strange at the end too, when the predators just board Evanston's ship and walk out with his head. I'm like, yeah, I know he was the eel guy who was in charge of this whole thing, but that still doesn't seem like honorable combat. I can't imagine he put up much of a fight in that well, situation. I think I think they'd sort of thrown that out, you know. But you know, we've said they adapt issue zero in this, and that the point of issue zero of war was this isn't a hunt, this is a war. There's a whole other set of rules going off here, and I think that was kind of the I can't remember if it was explicit, explicitly stated or not, but that was I believe the intention behind the whole assault oh, on the oh, on the, clone yeah, the snake, as it were, because they they wanted the guy that was responsible for the xenoborgs, the buggers. They thought they were an abomination, and they wanted the guy responsible for it. So different rule set yeah i guess that makes sense and this book and poor alien fans have to read it you know <laughs> <laughs> there's I mean, no real aliens in this book no. that, that was that was something 17 year old me fucking hated and it was something 30 year old me 31 year old me it was like i've read worse I've read words. <laughs> and you didn't even get a one real xenomorph. You know, you got the buggers. And remember, guys, that's quote unquote the buggers. This and the uh, box. Now, now you did get you have one regular xenomorph, not even the one that bursted out of. No, well, yeah, that, well, yeah. I, I suppose that was. That, was that's that. a chest burst. But hey, let's talk about that scene for a second, okay? All these guys and Machiko are xenomorph 
experts. They've all dealt with them. They know their life cycles. You know, even Evanston understands it. Okay. And then, and then lo and behold, when this whole hunting party is killed, except Brookings, you know, that her, her best lawyer, his best lawyer friend, I think her name was Petra was suddenly found and she's alive, but she has no memory and she has chest discomfort and everyone's standing around and no one ever thinks to even scan her for a possible chest burster, even though Every single person in the room are xenomorph experts have dealt with them, have killed them. It is so moronic to me that I'm screaming at the book, guys, <laughs> get her scanned. You know, she might have a chest burster inside. And of course, you know, the chest burster explodes and, and we're supposed to be shocked as a reader. And we're not. But do and we ever see that dead. alien like as an adult or does it just scuttle off and that's the last Chico kills it. It gets shot. Oh, that's right. So it was so ridiculous. It, it, it was a very poorly written sequence, yes. There's something to be said about trying to leave hints for your reader and then making everybody else seem like idiots. So yes, yes, completely agree. A little random point that I was kind of disappointed by was the fact that it made it seem like Michiko had never hunted anything other than aliens with the Predators, which it's only little. And at the end of the day, the book's so inconsequential for me that it's like, eh. But, you know, it, it was it was a little disappointment for me with this one. Yeah, Didn't guess- they kind of allude to Earth War in the beginning? Because I think when Michiko was like talking about Earth, she's like, oh, before the, the humans and the bugs took it over or whatever. I don't remember because I don't think the AVP... No, because this I think AVP is set before Earth War. Oh, is it? Or at least the original one is because I think the original one was just around the time of Alien. Yeah, I could have sworn there was a part early on in the book where she talks about, oh, this planet is what Earth must have been like before the humans and the bugs like did their thing on it or whatever. Hmm. I remember Maybe. that thing in the book. Maybe. And we, we should revise her statement, our corrective statement. There was real xenomorphs and a queen in the beginning of the book in a flashback. Oh, that's right. That's in, right. in the issue zero where the adaptation, yeah. Yeah. So here's a question for you real quick, Aaron. When was the last time you read War? The book or the comic? The book. A couple of years ago, maybe? It, it, it wasn't so long ago, but it's not recent. And I'm going to assume you remember it being a better book than this. Yeah, war, uh, war, the war novel, I think, is one of the shorter ones. And again, I do feel that was a little bit work for hire. I don't remember it really expanding terribly much. But it was only S.D. Perry who did war, uh, Stephanie. And she's she's always a good, reliable author. So, yeah, I think yeah. it would be interesting to read like back to back because this book and that book have adaptations of the same scene, that Dark Horse issue zero of, mm-hmm. of War. And just to compare the how it reads with War and this for that exact same scene, I might I might do that because that'd be kind of an interesting exercise. Definitely, yeah. You brought up the Predators, Aaron, and um, I will give credit where I can find it. Again, I, I don't like how the Predators were presented mostly through the book, and they were too chatty, and I agree it was too um, Klingon-ish. But there was a scene I actually did enjoy where Michiko had to appeal to the Predators about the buggers in a plea for help and assistance. And the Predators initially thought it was a trick, and Shorty appeared just in time to label her as a traitor. And, you know, Michika called for a challenge just in time before they killed them. And that contest was an entertaining read. The dialogue was minimal, which I really liked. That's how I like my Predators. And I just like that contest. I like how Michiko called out First Blood. I thought that was like a thrilling moment. 
Um, and I enjoyed how the predator system was described by Bischoff, that if someone threw down the gauntlet, it had to be picked up. That was the predator code. Courage had to be met with courage, that life wasn't as important as being brave in death. That was a small little piece that I actually really enjoyed. And I wish it was more of that, that it consisted of minimal dialogue. And we were just taught as these predators interacted and through the eyes of um, Machiko versus, you know, actually getting to hear, you know, them speak about the umans, you know, and the, the, the hard meat and the soft meat <laughs> and the dark meat and the white meat, you know, I'm all ready for turkey. But uh, I did enjoy that little, that little snippet. I think it expands reasonably well on how Perry had set them up in the first book. I can't remember how much of that is just like directly taken from how he handled scenes in, in Prey. So I'd I'd be quite interested for you to go and read Prey and War and sort of come back with oh, how you feel about the Yowcher after that. Well, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've, let me see, I think in, um, what was the, um, if it bleeds, you know, we got to see, uh, I think it was, uh, was it Perry's sequel to Turnabout? Yes. And, um, you know, we got to hear the, the perspective of the Predator. And I actually enjoyed that. It was just really well done. Same thing with the Predator 2 novelization. So sometimes it can really work well. It just, as you were saying, it just came off like too much like Klingons here. I think they're just too wordy for me. And um, it, it really depends on the, on the person that you're reading and, and the approach they take. Yeah. You know, the Predator 2 novelization does it really well. Does it really well. And South China Sea does it really well. Turnabout is actually quite minimal. I don't think it even comes up at all in Turnabout, actually. But it was um, the sequel to Turnabout. Um, yeah, but the, the sequel to Turnabout does do it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the ones that do it like the Predator 2 novel, the ones that do it like South China Sea are the ones I prefer. I don't like getting too far into them. Or maybe it's just because I don't like Perry's Klingon-esque version of them. So, it, you know, that whole thing in this, I kind of like roll my eyes at, even in even in Hunter's Planet. Yeah, yeah. I um, I don't know if you guys can tell. I didn't really enjoy this book. <laughs> I knew. I noticed. <laughs> so... What one final point of discussion then? I just want to know what you guys thought of name aside the buggers and the concept of the Xenoborg in this. You know, Aaron, I think you and I are probably more on board with this concept than AJ because we have the context of AVP1 by Rebellion on PC because I'll always remember playing that game and just seeing the Xenoborg hunched over and then having it come up and then the targeting lasers are active and it was such a cool scene in that game that it, it really kind of brought me on board with that concept. And of course, you have Jerry in the comics and I thought that character was cool. Here, it just seemed like they were less synthetic aliens kind of like they were presented there and more just aliens being controlled through cybernetic means and i don't think it worked as well here not at all and it seems like you really do not like that concept aj right <laughs> yeah you know it, it's interesting with me when i read a book i picture it like a film i don't deal with comics but I visualize it in my head and some things work in comics that don't work on film and don't work on screen. And I think this is one of them, you know, we could equate that to maybe the newborn. I know I'm going to piss people off with that. Or um, let's say nobody likes the newborn. Okay. You're fine. Okay. Or no, nobody likes the newborn. Or the, um, the upgrade predator, right? <laughs> when it's 11 feet tall and what was he? 250 pounds. I mean, 
it, it just gets a little ridiculous. It feels like it's a stretch. You know, it's that genetic upgrade, the bigger, badder, scarier, and that just never seems to be the right way to go. I mean, maybe there's some examples out there. But it just feels like it feels like bad writing. You know, it feels like, you know, they're taking the position of Ridley Scott that the beast is cooked and you, you got to mo- modify it to make it interesting. Clearly, I don't think you need to do that. You know, I just think the writing around it, the characters around it and the story around it has to be interesting. And this just feels like a cheap way to give you oohs and ahs. I know that prologue was supposed to be like a stunner. It was supposed to be a Batman v Superman Martha moment. Where everyone's supposed to gasp, you know, because they're hiding that 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 little gun. I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was eye rolls at the moment. <laughs> well, and that's and that's my point. Ultimately, <laughs> I think the eye rolls win in that scene when you read that prologue and he whips out the gun. I gotta believe that David Bischoff was saying, "Man, people are going to be like wow and stunned." But I think it just generates mostly eye rolls and cringes, and they're. they're not- they're not looking for cybernetic xenomorphs. It's just a ploy that I just can't stand. And maybe it could be handled really well, and I've just yet to see it, but it wasn't handled well here. And they're called the buggers. I mean, you're, how do you take them seriously? Look, everyone, run. It's the buggers. <laughs> to, to be fair, Halo also had buggers, and they were very good in, in Halo. Okay. I know you're a big Halo fan. I'm a very big Halo fan, yes. So I like them as a concept. And again, you know, going back to what Ridgetop said, it's because of AVP Classic, AVP Gold, AVP 99, Rebellion's first AVP on the PC. So as a concept... They they belong in a video game. That's great. That kind of stuff is video game gold. I just... See, I I still give the books that kind of leeway. I give the books and the comics that kind of leeway. Yeah, you can can try different things in in the books that you wouldn't normally see in the films, but I I just don't think it was effective here. Yeah. No, I agree. I like the concept. I like how it's been handled in the games. In this, it was just so wishy-washy. You know, even Bischoff didn't seem to know what was truly happening with them when he was trying to describe their development and what they were doing. And they were ineffectual within the narrative of the book as well, you know, because he he was remote controlling them on his Xbox, con- well, what would it have been in 1994? Sega Mega Drive? He was controlling them on his Sega Mega Drive controller and being shit at it. And I, there was re- some ridiculous imagery in there as well. You know, some of the enhancements that he was describing were multiple limbs robotic limbs carrying other weapons and stuff like that and i i was rolling my eyes i was so i, I couldn't figure yes. out why i'd short it out i mean i would love if this guy was like a coffee drinker and he's always with the coffee he's always with the <laughs> coffee and then when he's in that control room he finally accidentally knocks the coffee and the coffee is his undoing i mean that would at least be creative i don't even know why this thing is shorted out i can't remember either to be honest so it, it was it was those last 70 pages were just so poor for me and uh, yeah the xenoborgs the buggers in this i was not a fan of it, it was wasted it was a wasted thing the, the, the only real redeeming thing of this book for me was attila and that was it but it didn't as i said earlier it didn't offend me it was just meh. yeah i I just didn't have a good time reading this book. You know, I wish I did. Uh, From the thin characters to the thin writing to the ridiculous dialogue, I was just disengaged every step of the way. And there was a part here there like, 
That's absolutely fair, mate. You know, at, yeah. at the end of the day, after I've finished writing up my little thing about the Xenobogs and the buggers, this is going back on bookshelf and it's not getting pulled out for another 10 years. I'll stick with war and I'll stick with Three World War for my um, Michiko story. If anyone wants a signed copy by Voodoo Magic, <laughs> you can find this copy on eBay right after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, oh. I mean I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna remove it from my collection, but I don't, <laughs> yeah. we won't be rereading it anytime soon. That's yeah. Fair. Okay, are we, are we done with Hunter's Planet? I think we're done with it. Sorry for the negative one, guys. They they happen. But as long as it's entertainingly negative, you know. And you know what? I think if you have a 13 year old, I'm being honest here. If you have a 13 year old, 12 year old is interested in reading an Alien versus Predator book, this book might be the book for them. They might have a good time with it. They're not looking for the real and deep characterizations. And, uh, you know, if they're looking for something popcorn, it might be fun. And it might be something there is a little um, hanky panky, but I don't think it gets descriptive, <laughs> if I recall, right? We just, no. They start kissing it's, and then it's, it's, it's Perry who was obsessed with sex. Yeah. So this might be actually a good novel for them just to start out. You know, yeah. I get, loved this book when I was a teenager, I thought it was great. Yeah, I wish but, I liked it as much when I reread it. But you like Echo more? Yes, as a, as I like, a teenage. I like book. Echo much more as a teenage yeah. book, and as an adult, as an adult reading a teenage yes, book. Yeah, yes, so. exactly. Cool. Well, with that portion of the podcast done for our video viewers, is, is anybody else got something to show and tell? Am I the only one? I think you're the only one. Yeah, I couldn't oh. muster up the energy for a shirt. <laughs> I am so I am so disappointed. For anyone listening to the podcast, but, Adam is naked. Hey, Aaron's got a good shirt, so his will make up for yes. our lack of. Uh, this was done for you, pair. You AVP are disgusting fan. lovers. So, <laughs> when when AVPR came out, it was uh, in America. It was a Christmas release, and they did some midnight, midnight showings on yeah. Christmas Eve. So, this was one of the shirts given out somewhere. <laughs> I survived at Midnight Massacre Christmas Eve, two thousand. Seven. Even you though you didn't, you I didn't, didn't watch it a few until and then a few on the back. later. PPR. Yeah. I love how they do the red and green too. Yeah. That's funny. So no, you can't I, you can't really see it, but there's a the circular pattern of of the image of them hugging around the earth. Uh, yeah, it's kind of faint there, but I see it. Yeah, so yeah. I, I didn't survive the Midnight Massacre. I'm, I'm pretty sure Fox PR sent me this shirt back in the day. And <laughs> this is the first time I've ever worn it. I put it on wondering if I would still, if this, you know, this gut would still fit in a shirt that I gave an estimated size for when I was 18 or seven, uh, 18, 19. <laughs> you know. Well, congratulations. <laughs> it fits. But you, you, you can see the baby. You can see the baby in profile. So. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't. Your shirt doesn't say "I survived this film," knowing how you feel about <laughs> AVP Requiem. Well, you know? I do have I do have another shirt where it is that you know that globe them hanging around it that I I like the imagery and I like the imagery. That was the, a cool uh, poster. Come on, Japanese now. poster as well. Yeah. The yeah. Japanese poster is phenomenal. Both of them are great. But even even the Predator, you know, I really like the skull poster, the one hanging up there, and I really like the infrared one that they did as well. So even the even the bad films, there's generally some imagery that I genuinely like in terms yeah. of posterage. Yeah, yeah, I actually enjoy that that one poster. I don't like the skull one, but I I do like the infrared. No, even even the one where it's the bigger batter holding fugitive's head. Like I thought when yeah, we I first saw like that, that, we were like, "Whoa, that's cool. That's kind of comic booky." Like we were digging it. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, you know, I just wanted to say, guys, since uh, this is the last podcast of 2020, I just want to say that 2020 um, obviously has been a real tragic year for everyone. And there really hasn't been much highlights overall to speak of. And I know we all uh, wish the best of health to everyone out there. Now, one good thing for me personally was being able to join this team, this AVP staff. So I would just like to thank personally, thank Darkness, Eric, I hope you're listening, Adam, and especially Aaron, who sometimes I think believes more in me than I do for, uh, <laughs> for allowing me to join this family. And that goes to uh, this community, too. You know, we have the best community out there. They were so supportive, bonded together, even brought together uh, several couples. So uh, just thanks to everyone, especially Aaron, again, that works like a machine to provide <laughs> great escapism in such a rough time where we need it. You know, so thank you all. And let's hope 2021 is a much better year. 100% on that one, yes. And yes, it's it's been great to have you on on board, Voodoo, and even just to play some rounds in, in Hunting Grounds and, and Apex and Warzone, which is, I think we got to know each other a little bit better with that. And no, you've, you've been a great addition to the team, and we really appreciate all the work you've, you've put into the site this year. And we really appreciate uh, our listeners and viewers to this podcast as well. You know, it's the feedback and comments we sometimes get that keeps us motivated to do this. Now, I mean, we do just in enjoy talking about it as well but it d definitely keeps us motivated to to have the kind of feedback that we get from from our community and the community that we've been a part of for uh, a good long while now and you know i'm hoping it seems with all the recent news we've had lately that 2021 is hopefully going to be um uh, a much more enjoyable year beyond just alien and predator goodness but we should have plenty of that as well so indeed and oh, aj getting all gushy there you know i started blushing i think so um you know and, and that's something else you know the, the the viewers and the listeners have also commented on on your addition to the team and they really like you so I'm we'll keep you around we'll keep you around for a little bit more i appreciate it guys and you know again like adam said the the, the feedback we do get does mean a lot to us at, at the end of the day we are doing this because we're a bunch of nerds that enjoy talking to each other but for some reason you people out there also seem to like it and and are interested in our opinions and i appreciate that and i appreciate hearing back from you i especially appreciate it because these guys all they have to do is read and talk i have to anally retentively go through um the the editing process and then particularly the audio so i do i do like to to hear you know that it is appreciated and stuff like that especially you know especially some of the comments that we had this year um of people picking up on stuff like that you know simple things like uh, pauses edited out of interviews and sending our guests questions so they, they can brush up beforehand so it's not a, a, a pause in the middle of an interview. So I've seen comments like that that have been picked up and I, I do appreciate it. If you are listening on like iTunes or Spotify or um, Podbean or whatever, it would be helpful if people could leave reviews and ratings. You know, that helps our visibility in terms of other people seeing us. And it's not something I've ever really shilled on before. You know, I don't tend to enjoy the shilling. But, you know, if you are enjoying the show, please do leave us a rating. Please do leave us uh, reviews and, and comments on, on the, you know, on the on the podcasts, on the posts, on, on YouTube. So, yeah. Very much appreciated, and thank you everybody who has been listening. I hope everybody's enjoyed this year because I think we've put out some good content this year. You know, some good interviews. Charles on on the assembly court. You know, Brian 
not Brian. Wyatt. I don't know why I thought Brian there. You know, Wyatt. Yeah. Wyatt, Wyatt Reed. was a great conversation. Yeah. Mark Verhaden. And I'm, I'm sure there's, there's others as well. But, you know, I want to mention that we're going to be kicking off 2021 with a fucking good one as well. You know, we got Stephen Hopkins. We actually got yeah. him. You know, we mentioned it in the last in the Predator 2 episode that I'd gone through everybody trying to find, you know, somebody to, to talk to with Predator 2. And we've we finally got him. We got Stephen Hopkins. And he will be the first episode of 2021. So I don't plan on giving you a shit 2021 either. You know, I plan on getting some good stuff out there. And, and as well as that, you know, Adam and I did an interview with Jeremy Barlow, who wrote Thicker Than Blood, which is... Also a really good conversation. And Aaron and I love that comic as well. Absolutely love that comic. So... That, that'll be a fun one. I know, I think AJ wasn't too keen on it, but, you know, me and Adam's positivity will, will wear him down when we do that review episode. So there's, there's plenty of stuff coming up. Don't you it was worry. better than his book. <laughs> <laughs> top top three comics. I will say, having enjoyed this book in my youth, it was still somewhat fun and nostalgic to go back and revisit it, even though I, it was not not nearly as much fun as I remember, but no, this, this podcast and, and talking about this stuff and, you know, being excited for the stuff as, as we are in normal times, but especially this year, I think has really just helped us kind of get through things, you know, but we're hoping next year, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon and we're going to do our best to have the greatest podcast lineup that we've ever had, hopefully. So, well, Adam, where can people find us if they want to check out the other areas? It's so not main, just a podcast. Our main website is avpgalaxy.net, and we have a message board there if you want to engage with our community in conversation about the franchise, all aspects of the franchise, the comics, the books, the movies, and games. We also are on all the major socials on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. If you just search Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, or AVP Galaxy, you're sure to find us. And if you want to follow me personally, I am on Twitter as at underscore Corporal Hicks. And that's Alien, Predator, Halo, Stargate, Star Trek, Airsoft, just all the generally nerdy bollocks that I'm into. If you'd like to follow me personally, it's at RidgeTop21 on both Instagram and Twitter. And if you'd like to follow me, I'm at FN Voodoo Magic, FN Voodoo Magic on Twitter. It'll never get old. It'll yeah. never get old. <laughs> and voodoo magic, man. Voodoo magic. I'm not even going to attempt. <laughs> so, this has been Corporal Hicks. And Ridgetop. And Voodoo Magic. And I've just realized we never came up with an end for an AVP. Yeah, episode. we never did. We got to come up with an AVP ending. What are we What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> whoever wins. Oh, damn it. That was where I was going. That was where I was going. And whoever wins, we know. We can't when do that com- one. When it comes to Hunter's Planet, whoever wins, <laughs> we lose. Or we could do, but this isn't for our world, is it, Mr. Tony? <laughs> no, we've got it. That's the end of it. We're done. <laughs> Are you looking at me or the clock? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that works too. <laughs> Thank you everybody for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>